Live from Norwich with the best of the fest, the Naked Scientists. Good evening. Uh, it is Chris Smith and Dave Ansell here with you for today's update from the BA Festival of Science. Now, if you didn't catch us yesterday, we're, of course, live in the WeatherQuest department at the University of East Anglia here in Norwich, which is hosting this year's BA Festival of Science. And every evening this week, we're here with you for a special Best of the Fest, which is a roundup of some of the highlights of the day. Dave. Coming up in the next half hour, we've got Anna finding out about non-verbal communication and what Tony Blair's body language is actually telling us. Um, we've got two wonderful guests. We've got Cambridge University's Nick Wareham um, on how diet and exercise and even where you live affects your health. And we've got Norwich John, in- the Norwich John Innes' centre, Tony Maxwell, making the next generation of antibiotics to fight superbugs. And if you're feeling a bit, feeling a bit experimental, we've got Derek, Sheena, Stephen and Ben on how to make your own litmus paper using just a can and some water. And after 8 o'clock, we'll be handing back to Nick in the studio in the forum for a science phone-in. So if you'd like to, to talk about any of the items that we're discussing this evening, either uh, how, to, uh, how to change your life to make yourself healthier, uh, or, of course, about antibiotics and superbugs, or anything just general science for us to answer, then the phone lines are open now, and you can call in. It's 0845 30 50 007. Now, of course, there have been lots and lots of things going on at the festival today, and uh, Dave dropped in at some of the press releases. What, what have you been talking about today? What have you found out? Well, Chris Stringer was talking about ancient humans. Now, the first evidence for humans in the UK was about 700,000 years ago. But Britain was a re- has been ve- a very, very difficult place to live, especially for a primitive human. Sometimes it's not, and it gets very, very cold. For example, 125,000 years ago, the atmosphere was, the climate was about the same as North Africa. But 20,000 years ago, it was about northern Sweden. So it gets really quite severe. It's also very hard for humans to get here because half the time it's an island or there's a bloody great river down the channel making big problems. Now, it appears that humans have died out, gone extinct in the UK over seven times in the last 700,000 years. And the last time they went extinct was about 15,000 years ago. So nobody's been here for more than about 12,000 years, which is much more recent than America or Australia or anywhere else. So so basically people have been coming and going from the British Isles for the last 700,000 years. So they're all immigrants. (laughs) It's quite quite funny, actually, because um, Tony Stewart, uh, who actually works around here in Norfolk, was one of the people who discovered some of the remains from 700,000 years ago and they published a paper in the journal Nature around Christmas time and, and I asked him, you know, what have you found? Have you got remains of these people or not? And he said, no, we haven't got any, any remains of the people themselves but we have got the, the vestiges of their activities, stone tools and that kind of thing. So, so I said, well, what kinds of things were these people doing and why were they here? And, and he said, just as, as you've said, that the climate was a lot warmer than like the Mediterranean so we sort of had the reverse Ibiza effect and people were coming not from... UK to Spain for their holidays but people were coming to the UK for the nice climate and the nice summers and also because not because of the nightlife so much but because the wildlife was fantastic there were elephants, hippos, mammoths that kind of thing running around here in, in Norfolk and the game was therefore absolutely fantastic you could, you could get anything you wanted to eat very very easily that was the magnet that drew people here for their summer holidays uh, but I said well what kinds of people actually were these that were living here and, uh, and he said well they were, they were a kind of primitive type of human before modern humans turned up about 12,000 years ago. And I said, well, what would they have looked like? Were well, their features? And he said, well, they had no chin, fairly big forehead, very small brain relative to today's humans, um, and obviously a penchant for hot holidays. So I said, well, obviously, you know, small brain, penchant for hot holidays, no chin. Obviously, the, the British aristocracy goes back a lot further than we thought. 
And the other thing is that Norfolk's been really important um, for studying these things because there's so much erosion, erosion on the East Coast that loads of interesting new stuff is being exposed all the time. Some of the best finds have been just people walking along the coast and finding a stone axe on the beach. Yeah, well, these things are, are tools that actually go back an enormous amount of time, but there's, there's a real paucity of actual physical evidence of these early humans, and that's the thing they really want to find because if we can, can home in on some actual bits of these people, it'll give us a much bigger clue as to who they actually were because winding the clock back 800,000 years, we know there were people living in Spain, we know sort of what they were like, and we have to infer that they were the people that came up here to the UK, but until we actually find some parts of them, we really don't know what they were. Of course, the other problem is that underwater, a lot of the evidence is actually underwater because whenever it was cold, the sea level dropped. And so a lot of the people are probably living underwater. Apparently, there's a lot of fishermen who make lots of money by dredging up mammoth bones and stone axes. That's absolutely true. Um, I actually saw some pictures the other day of a, of a, of a trawlerman who, who said he had actually made more money from, fish, uh, from, from mammoth bones that year than from fish um, just by dredging the channel. And because the channel was obviously originally a huge, great area of land, wasn't, wasn't flooded at all, uh, and whenever he deploys his net, sometimes uh, he catches a massive great bone and it's a 12,000-year-old mammoth bone. Now, I've also been listening to David Klenerman, um, who is a molecular biologist, and he's been looking... He's, the problem with molecular biology is it's great at molecules, but molecules are like little parts of a car or an aeroplane, and all, and all molecular biology can do is tell you about the parts. It doesn't tell you anything about how they fit together. So he's been looking at how to image a cell while it's still working. He's come up with a great new technique which involves a very, very, very fine pipette with a little bit of salt water in it. And then you, apply, you put that, you scan that across the surface of the cell and measure the resistance into the cell, electrical resistance. The electrical resistance. resistance. Yeah. And you can then see things down to a few nanometers, maybe ten or f- five or ten nanometers, and you can actually see viruses on the surface of the cell and going in. And hopefully that will tell us a lot more about how cells work and lead to... Because how small can we get down to at the moment with with present imaging technology? Well, um, you can get down to a similar sort of size, but the problem is you need to use an electron microscope or something like that, and that needs a vacuum. So the only way you can do it is by freezing the thing and then chopping it up, and that doesn't really tell you about how it's working. Uh, And when it's alive and doing something functioning. Well, totally off the wall now. Uh, I, w- I met this guy today who really blew my mind. R- Rupert Sheldrake is his name, and he's a researcher who works in London. And he's been doing experiments, experiments on telepathy. And most people who are scientists, when you start talking about things like telepathy, you begin to say, well, hang on a minute. Uh, but actually, I was very interested in what this guy had to say, because what he's done is got groups of people who think they're telepathic and said to them, can you recommend four friends, like phone a friend on Millionaire, can you recommend four friends who, who you, you can give us the phone numbers for? And so they got these volunteers, and they got four, the phone numbers of four of their friends, and then they put the volunteer in a room with a video camera looking at them, and they rolled a dice to ran, or to use random numbers to select one of the four friends these people had nominated, and then told one of those four friends to phone up the person who was being scrutinised in this room. The phone rang in that room, and the person on the camera was then asked, who do you think is, on, is ringing you up before you answer the phone? Who is it? Now, obviously, if they were just guessing, these people, they'd have been right one time in four because they've got four friends. They were actually right nearly half the time, 50% of the time, uh, which is far more than chance. And this wasn't just a few people doing this. This was actually done with 61 volunteers the first time, and, and they've actually scrutinised on camera four, four people doing this, and the same results were found every time, which is actually really quite spooky. So you say, well, is this a sort of proximity effect? You know, what, how, what's the range of this telepathic effect? And, and actually they've repeated the experiment with people in Australia, 
and in the UK, doing it from the other side of the world, and it still works. So whatever the, the, the kind of means of communication is going on to drive this telepathic effect, it doesn't seem to have a boundary. It seems to extend over a long distance. Yeah, it's something which could be very interesting if it's true, but I'd like to see the experiment done very carefully and someone look very, very carefully at experiments because quite often with these sort of things, you find that there's some really subtle mistake they made in their experimental method which screws up the results. It is Chris and Dave, the Naked Scientists from the BA Festival of Science at UEA. Now, the BA this year expect about 40,000 people to visit the festival. And to give you a taste of what it's like here, we've sent our Naked Scientist reporter, Anna Lacey, out to find out a little bit more. The BA Festival is very much about bringing scientists and the public together, but it wouldn't be possible without the hard work of the people making the tea, sorting out problems and keeping journalists like myself on track. So I went out with a microphone to speak to one of them. Excuse me, could you tell me which way the square is, please? Um, straight ahead, then right, then forwards. Thanks very much. Well, I noticed there that you had a lot of hand gestures going on. Why was it that you pointed? Because it's a really complicated route and I can't explain myself properly. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure she thought I was all there. But anyway, her helpful pointing is a perfect example of one of today's sessions called Communicating Without Words. It consisted of a series of talks about how hand gestures and eye movements can reveal what people are really thinking. At the end of the session, I got chatting to Yvonne Legree from Heatherset in Norfolk about what she thought. I thought the, the talks were excellent and I particularly liked Dr Peter Collitz about the politicians. <laughs> was uh, very interesting and amusing. Peter watches the unconscious gestures politicians use during speeches to try and work out what they're really thinking. To test whether Yvonne had been paying attention during the lecture, I got Peter to give us a quick demonstration. The first one I'm going to produce involves me presenting you with the open hands but with my palms facing back towards me and my knuckles towards you. Now that's a gesture that Tony Blair does a lot. So what did Yvonne think? Well I think he's guarding himself and maybe guarding the knowledge that he has. Perhaps he doesn't want us to know everything that he knows and the knuckles out so he could only turn the fingers in and have a punch. Well it turned out that the impression he might be preparing to give someone a black eye wasn't too far from the truth. Here's Peter again. What he's actually doing is he's exposing his knuckles, that is the hard manly features of his hands. This is a high dominance gesture. And if you watch Tony closely, you'll see that whenever he's trying to impress people with how powerful he is, he uses the knuckle display. But not everyone who watched the talk agreed. Here's Oxford University experimental psychologist Courtney Norbury. Well, I think that gesture and facial expression are definitely important for communication. But the thing I would caution about what's happening today at the Science Festival is it's really just one person's interpretation of what those gestures mean. So it's kind of like saying, Tony Blair plays second fiddle to George Bush, and now I'm going to show you some gestures that demonstrate that he plays second fiddle to George Bush. Despite whether or not the interpretation is accurate, there's plenty of other evidence that silent communication can reveal what people are thinking. Eyes and eye gaze can be particularly revealing. I asked Gwyneth Doherty Snedden from the University of Stirling why eyes are so important in communication. Eyes are very important, very powerful signals of all sorts of things from threat to affiliation and liking. They have a very dramatic impact on us. They create, just looking into somebody's eyes creates a physiological arousal um, within us. So is that why we can't look at people in a lift then? 
Here's Gwyneth with the answer. There are issues about intimacy distance and personal space, so that in a very close relationship you can tolerate um, more eye contact, closer proximity, more touching and so on. Um, but if you're not um, very familiar, you're not in a close relationship with somebody, then you have to compensate for that level of uncomfortableness. So you'll tend to avoid making eye contact if you're standing too close to somebody that you're not very familiar with. That was our Naked Science reporter, Anna Lacey. And uh, it's interesting, someone said to me the other day that they bought one of those sat-nav systems that uh, guides your car using satellite navigation and that you could download different voices for it. Uh, they suggested that Tony Blair's voice was actually one of the ones that you could download, but I didn't think it would be very good because no-one would believe anything it said and they'd all go the wrong way anyway. It's the Naked Scientists, Chris and Dave, and we're joined by our guests this evening, Nick Wareham, who's the director of the MRC Epidemiology Unit in Cambridge, and also Tony Maxwell from the John Innes Centre here in Norwich. First of all, let's kick off by talking to Nick. Um, Nick... Thanks for coming in. You're interested in how your lifestyle and how your place of habitation, where you live, actually affects your health. Sure. I mean, our interest is in, in the relationship between lifestyles and many of the highly prevalent diseases we see today, obesity and uh, type 2 diabetes. We're interested in how that interacts with, with your genetic profile to lead to risk. Uh, what sorts of things are you collecting about people? What sort of information are you picking up to, to make this association? Well, in, in, in Norfolk, we're involved in the EPIC study, which is a study of 25,000 people who've now been helping us for, for 10 years. It's a major study of how genes and lifestyle interact, mostly to, to, to cause uh, cancer, but we're also focused on diabetes and obesity. And in, in the relationship of uh, studying physical activity, what we've been able to show recently is even small changes in physical activity are associated with major reduction in the risk of cardiovascular mortality and all-cause mortality. So what you mean walking up the stairs rather than taking a lift? Sure. And in, in the se separate studies uh, that we've undertaken in, in the city of Ely, where we've been studying a population of about 1,500 people for the last 10 years, We've actually gone from studying just questionnaires to actually trying to measure the totality of people's energy expenditure. Because we all remember the last time we played squash or when we went to the gym. But the thing that's really hard to measure is the, the, the insensible physical activity, whether you, you know, walk a little bit further in your everyday life, whether you preferentially use the stairs rather than the lift. But uh, aren't modern lifestyles really making this quite difficult? Because if you look at, say, the way buildings are put together, I don't know necessarily about the newest generation of buildings, but the, the buildings we're all using at the moment, for example, the stairs are almost impossible to find. No, that's a good point. I think many of our sort of preventive interventions assume that we are uh, totally in control of our own destiny, and if you just berate people enough and educate them, they'll, uh, they'll become more physically active. But that, that's unlikely to be true if, as you suggest, uh, physical activity has been engineered out, out of our lifestyle. And it's certainly true in, in many buildings. It's very difficult to find the stairs. I struggled manfully to get up to this thir third floor uh, studio this evening. I couldn't find the staircase. No, neither could we. We couldn't find the studio for the first about two days either. We had to sort of get here more by luck than judgment. But yes, you, you end up almost compulsorily using the lift when actually you'd quite like to take the stairs. Sure, and there are many studies which now show if at the point of decision you provide people with that choice. If you say you could use the lift, but if you just go around this corner, there's a staircase and that would be better for your health, then people do tend to do that. It's quite interesting because in the hospital where I work, the, the lifts there have a voice that speaks to you, and I've always been tempted to reprogram that voice. So when someone gets in at the ground floor and presses level one, it doesn't say, why are you taking the lift to level one? Get out and walk because you're too fat or something. It would be quite, quite effective, wouldn't it, to it, uh, would shame it, them onto the stairs? It would if you could find the staircases in that hospital, which is the same one that I work in. Which, and part of the problem here is that 
thinking about building design, we've put safety as the first and most important uh, factor. And, of course, many fire safety officers want staircases to be wholly enclosed because that's better for fire risk. But if you then can't find the staircases and uh, use them, that would be rather counterproductive. Are there any kind of covert tactics that lift people could use to persuade people out of the lift and into the stairs then? Yeah, I think there are. In, in, um, in the Netherlands, for example, there are. It, if you limit the amount of space in front of the lift by careful placing of plants, and uh, <laughs> then not too many people can wait for the lift. The other thing is if, you, if you're a busy chap like you yourself uh, and you have a signpost to the staircase and you make the lift incredibly slow, to close the doors and then go up to the next floor, you'll probably get bored and run and find those staircases. Is there any evidence that that actually works, though? Yeah, from the Netherlands. This is a bit like what my dad has this theory that the way to make people do more exercise is to outlaw windscreens, because then it will be so uncomfortable to drive that people will take other <laughs> modes of transport. Uh, nice one, Dad, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, getting back to this region... In terms of geography, how does that affect how healthy we are and how much exercise you take? Sure. Well, I mean, we've just been speaking as, about the, the built environment, but, of course, we have to think about the macro built environment as well. And this is a, an area of intense research. There are studies from Australia and the United States which try and assess the walkability of neighbourhoods. How easy is it to, um, to walk around? I've just recently been in the United States and also in, in, in Denmark, and it's impossible in the United States to, to walk around many cities because uh, it, there is a car-dominated culture, whereas in Denmark it's much more uh, conducive to use of bicycles. Because there was some evidence if you live, on, live in a cul-de-sac, you tend to be more likely to take the car. If yes, you live so on, a, on, a, on a main road, you're more likely to, to walk or ride. That's, that, that's correct, and I think we need to study those things in more detail. And One of the studies we announced at the BA today is a, a new study funded by the National Prevention and Research Initiative aimed at looking at that macro-built environment and its relationship to uh, physical activity both in adults in the EPIC study but also in uh, 2,000 school children uh, who are going to study in, in Norfolk in collaboration with colleagues here at the University of East Anglia. Thanks, Nick. That's Nick Wareham, who's uh, the director of the MRC Epidemiology Unit in Cambridge. And if you'd like to ask Nick any questions, he'll be here after 8 o'clock. You just need to call in on 0845 30 50 007. Our other guest this evening is Tony Maxwell. From uh, He's an orange man. He's here from the John Innes Centre, and he works on antibiotics. Hi, Tony. Hi. So tell us, where do most antibiotics come from, and how do we go about finding them, first and foremost? What surprises many people is that most antibiotics, in fact, come from the soil. And there's a certain type of soil-dwelling bacteria called Streptomyces, which in fact makes 70% of the antibiotics that we use today. Well, why do they do that? Well, in fact, the soil is a very rich and competitive environment, and these, these bacteria or bugs want to kill their neighbours and friends. The way they do that is to make these compounds, which we call antibiotics, to kill each other. But, of course, we can harness those and use them to kill bacteria in our own bodies. So how do you go about finding a new one? Because we've all heard that you know, penicillin's been around for quite a while now. Lots of bugs are resistant to it. Well, that's right. I mean, first of all, a correction, penicillin actually comes from a fungus, not from a bacteria. But most of the antibiotics that are used today, in fact, come from bacteria. And the way uh, researchers go about discovering them is to grow up these streptomyces bacteria, to isolate the small molecules, the small chemicals that are in them, and test them on a range of targets. And then how do you get that into the clinic? 
Because it's one small range of targets is one thing, but a patient's a different matter. Absolutely. And so academic researchers like myself do the early work, identifying targets, looking at new compounds. It's the pharmaceutical companies that do all the stringent testing and refining of the antibiotics so they can actually be used by you and me and your general practitioner. So, so, but why do we, we need new antibiotics? I know obviously bugs become resistant, but how do they do that? And, and what strategies are there to get around the problem? Unfortunately, it's an inevitability that bacteria are highly adaptable and so if you treat them with antibiotics eventually resistance will ensue and it's a question of, uh, of timing that you want to use your antibiotics carefully uh, proportionately and so that you, you don't encourage resistance but eventually it will happen so what we need to do is always keep one step ahead of the bacteria making new compounds, new things to challenge them with and take MRSA as an example, the, the, the notorious superbug. Um, you've actually got a compound which you reckon is going to be effective against it. Well, that's, that's not exactly true. I mean, just, just to um, give some more detail on that, that stands for methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is a particular problem in, in hospitals. Now, there are uh, antibiotics, good ones in the clinic today, that will kill MRSA. Um, that we are continually trying to develop new antibiotics. It's hard to know whether the compounds we're working with in the lab today will eventually be drugs in, say, five or ten years' time. And it does take that long. But uh, tell us about the agent you have got. So um, what we're actually doing is using natural compounds from streptomyces, and it's worth pointing out that most of the antibiotics we use are indeed natural compounds, manipulating them and then challenging them uh, against bacteria and seeing if they work better. It's then a matter for pharmaceutical companies to develop those into drugs. So I'm part of an European Union consortium of five academic labs and two industrial labs who together will help to produce these new compounds. Okay, thanks, Tony. That's Tony Maxwell, who is from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. He's here with us also after 8 o'clock. If you'd like to ask him any questions, you just have to phone in on 0845 30 50 007. And any general science questions, too, for Dave and I to, to have a go at for you. It's time now for the second in our special series of kitchen science experiments. Every night this week, our kitchen science team are paying a visit to a different kitchen around the region. Tonight, Derek Thorne is with Sheena, Stephen and Ben from Downham Market High School, and they're going to be showing you how to make your very own litmus paper using a cabbage. Hello and welcome to Downham Market High School in Norfolk. Uh, we've come here today to do another experiment which you can do in your kitchen, so do listen out for the details. And uh, with me to describe it all is Sheena Elliott. Uh, so what have we got lined up today, Sheena? We're going to be using red cabbage as a pH indicator. OK, there you go. So you'll be finding out more about that very, very soon. But also we've got a couple of volunteers who very kindly come down here to help us do the experiment. So guys, could you give me your names and what years you're in, please? I'm Stephen from Year 10. I'm Ben, I'm in Year 10 as well. Excellent. Thanks for coming down, guys. So you at home, the things that you need are firstly some red cabbage, some fresh red cabbage. That's really the key ingredient here. The second thing you need is something with which to, well, either cook it or blend it. OK, so either a blender of some sort or a saucepan and some boiling water to um, cook it a bit. And finally, you need some stuff from your kitchen that can make an acid and that can make an alkali. Now, good acid things are things like vinegar and lemon juice. 
and good alkali things are things like bicarbonate of soda dissolved in water. So, um, Sheena, take us through the, uh, the setup here. What do we have to do with all these things? Okay, so first of all, if we've got fresh cabbage, which is just in a, in a blending jar, and we've got a hand blender, it's just covered with water, so we're going to blend that up with the water. Or if you don't have that, then you can boil your red cabbage in some water. Don't boil it in too much water, because we want to get a sort of fairly high concentration of the colour pigment. Okay, then, and then what are we doing with these mixtures that we're making up? With here, we've got some soap powder, which is just sort of washing soap powder for your washing machine. We've got some bicarbonate of soda, and we've got some lemon juice, and we've just dissolved a little bit of each of these, um, into separate glasses. So we've got a glass with a bit of water and some soap powder and one of them's lemon juice and we also just have a glass of water just as a control experiment. And we've got those on standby there already. However, the blending of the cabbage has not yet been done. So uh, I say we do it. We're very keen to do some live blending here. I'm sure it's not a first or anything, but we're still keen. So Stephen here has volunteered to do some blending. So here we go. Obviously, we're advising people to have adults around where necessary. But yeah, um, go for it, Stephen. Okay, now Stephen, what can you see there down down in the cabbage? All the um, juices from the cabbage and the colour pigments have come out. They have indeed come out. And what colour is it? Red. It is indeed. Red cabbage gives you a red juice, so that's fine. How did your blending experience feel? Good. Way. Okay, well, we've got some more cool stuff coming up. Right then, so there we go. We've got some juice. Um, what do we need to do with that juice? Then all we need to do is just put a few drops of this sort of purple liquid into each of our sort of dissolved uh, solutions. OK, then. So, Ben and Stephen, if you, if, uh, who'd like to do some pouring, firstly? Um, I think we're firstly going to pour into the control. They're pointing at each other. They're not sure who's going to do it. All right, Ben, you're, you're first, then. So if you could pour from the jug into, the, firstly, the normal water. It's gone down to the bottom and gone all the way around and made the top and the bottom blue and purple colour. Now, it's Stephen's turn, I think, so we've got some lemon juice next. Would you care to pour into that and tell us what you see? Well, the lemon juice has gone quite dark red. Right, and now back to Ben again. We've got some bicarbonate of soda, so pop it in there and tell us what you see. When the cabbage juice went in, it went a little bit blue, a bit darker than the water went at first. Yeah, OK, then. And now, finally, we've got some soap powder, so Stephen's going to round it off by doing that one for us. With the soap powder, it's gone a sort of light green. Yeah, rather pleasant colour, I think. Maybe cyan or something? I don't know. So, Sheena, why don't you explain to us um, what have we been seeing here? So, yeah, basically, using our cabbage, we've made pH indicators, and it's all to do with how the molecules change when they're, when they're in different environments. OK, now, obviously, you've mentioned the term pH there, so let's begin with that one. What, what does that mean? Uh, pH is how we measure the acidity or how basic, how alkaline a liquid is, and it's, all, it's just a measure of how many hydrogen ions are in that material. OK, right. And so in an acid, then, I mean, what makes it an acid? Um, it's an acid because it's got a higher concentration of hydrogen ions by themselves compared to water, which means so there's basically more hydrogen than the water has by itself. OK, then. So we've made up this cabbage juice. So how, how does that help us tell between the acid and the alkali? So this cabbage juice has got these molecules, which are called anthocyanins, and, and they change how they absorb light in, in their different environments. First of all, just to understand why it's purple to begin with, why our red cabbage looked purple to begin with, is because it's absorbing every colour apart from purple. So the white light that shines onto it, which carries all the different colours of the spectrum, it's basically all being absorbed apart from purple, so all we see is the purple colour. When we put it into a different environment, we change it, the, the, molecule, the molecular structure of the anthocyanin, so it sort of takes on new hydrogen ions or it loses new hydrogen ions, depending on if we're putting in an acid or an alkali, and that means that the molecule changes its shape. It changes its structure and it then changes the sort of colours which it can absorb. 
OK, well, thank you very much for the explanation. And uh, we've actually got more kitchen science tomorrow, so do listen then. We'll actually be coming from Cambridge University uh, when we'll be armed with a bottle of lemonade and some mint imperials. And it's a pretty cool one too, so do listen out. Anyway, many thanks to Stephen, Ben and, of course, Sheena for uh, setting up the experiment. And uh, until tomorrow then, it's goodbye. Thanks very much, Derek. On tomorrow's edition of the programme, we'll be hearing from Madeleine Humphreys at Cambridge University about the explosive subjects of volcanoes, and Peter Coles will be with us from the University of Nottingham to discuss the Big Bang, in other words, where we all came from. Selena, hello. Oh, hello there. I would like to know why it is that I have so many reactions to uh, so many drugs. Jabs or antibiotics? Well, uh, uh, antibiotics and drugs, because... One, one of the drugs which I had for high blood pressure caused um, anaphylactic shock. Yeah, it sounds to me like you're quite a hyperimmune person and there are certain people in the population that are more predisposed to having allergy. And in some people, when you give them certain agents, they very quickly mount a response. And sometimes it's not an appropriate response, which is what an anaphylactic uh, reaction is. But, Tony, I mean, do you, do you see much of this? Well, you're absolutely right. There are certain people who are more susceptible to these sort of allergic reactions. And the obvious answer is to take as few as drugs as possible. But obviously, if you're, if you're sick, you need to do that. But you must continually consult your GP about what you're taking. Because this is a um, distinct entity from people who have diarrhoea, for example, when they get put on a dose of antibiotics from the doctor. That, that's right, because di uh, diarrhoea can be caused by the antibiotics affecting the bacteria that naturally live in, in your gut. Often that's nothing to worry about. So what actually happens when so you take some antibiotics to, to get rid of a nasty strain of bacteria, it wipes out some of the so-called good bacteria that are normally in the intestine, but what, what happens after that? Well, you very quickly reacquire the good bacteria. We have millions and millions of bacteria in our gut. You can certainly afford to lose a lot of them and not worry about it. You reacquire them very quickly. Does that answer your question, Slim? Well, yes, it does partially, but it is... I mean, I'm pushing 79. I'm 79 in uh, November, and uh, I have diabetes, high blood pressure, you name it, I've got it, and I've got allergies for England in every other respect. Well, the Olympics is coming up soon. I was going to say, it's good that we could get a gold in something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Selena, thanks for calling in. Um, we, we had an anonymous uh, caller. I didn't want to go on the radio. It says, uh, she wants to know, what causes impotence and why does the female pill not work when they're taking other sorts of medication? OK, um, well, what impotence is, is a consequence of, a num of any of three mechanisms. It can be psychological because often thinking the wrong thoughts at the wrong time can be a very distracting experience and can stop things working properly. Secondly, drugs. There are lots and lots of drugs you can take, the side effect of which is to actually make people impotent. And that's uh, a, oh, a common culprit, so drugs that are for high blood pressure, for example, because the way in which uh, men get an erection is that blood vessels open up in the right place and also close down in other places. And this, uh, this shuttles blood into uh, what's a, a tissue that's a bit spongy, lets it fill up with blood, and, of course, things swell. Now, if you stop that process happening in the right order and in the right way by drugs blocking those blood vessels opening and closing, then unfortunately it can have oh, it's, it throws a spanner in the works and things don't happen properly. Uh, and the other the other thing is that as you get older, various diseases kick in and blood vessels can themselves be damaged by 
ageing itself and also things like diabetes and a very common complication of diabetes which I suspect uh, Nick in his study, you must come across this, is damage to blood vessels and people with diabetes can get problems with their peripheral circulation, they can lose limbs and toes for example because of gangrene because blood vessels fur up and also they're at high risk of strokes and heart disease which is why it's very important for people with diabetes to make sure that they keep their weight down, eat, eat a sensible diet and take some exercise and, and try to minimise that but the damage to blood vessels which happens in the context of diabetes um, can damage the blood vessels that help people to get an erection and that's why you can get impotence. Now to move on to the other part of the question which was about the oral contraceptive pill and why it doesn't work under certain circumstances. The reason for that is that the pill uh, contains oestrogen or a drug like oestrogen and those drugs are broken down in the liver there's a certain metabolic pathway in the liver that removes those drug molecules from the circulation and turns them into something else that doesn't have an oestrogen-like effect. Now, that process happens at just the right rate. So you take a pill and it puts the amount of oestrogen into the bloodstream to just the right level to stop your ovaries making any eggs so it stops you ovulating so you're not fertile. Problem is, if you increase the ability of the liver to break down oestrogen, then it removes more oestrogen from the bloodstream than you're putting in, and so the level of oestrogen falls and it doesn't keep the ovaries switched off and you can ovulate. Another reason why you might not have enough oestrogen is not because you're taking a drug which makes the liver work harder, because some drugs can do that, it's because you don't absorb very much of the oestrogen in the pill. So if you take some drugs such as antibiotics and they give you diarrhoea, then the, the pill doesn't uh, stay in the intestine for very long, it goes through very fast on the diarrhoea, and as a result you don't absorb very much of the oestrogen, so there's not very much in the blood. So again, the ovary doesn't get switched off properly. So things that can make the liver break down oestrogen very fast include a number of sub a number of substances alcohol can increase the metabolic activity of the liver in the short term. Also, things uh, like anti-epilepsy drugs are also implicated. They can do it. And uh, a number of things that you wouldn't necessarily get from the doctor, but you can get non-prescribed, let's say, they can also do it. And, uh, and also the herb St. John's wort, which some people take because they think it's uh, good for low mood. It makes you feel happier. It's like a natural antidepressant. That will also do this. And uh, some people have unfortunately become pregnant because they've taken some St. John's wort. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for that. And, um, and another one on, on Atkins diet, pros and cons thereof. Because it, it, it's, it's a funny old diet, that, and was massively fashionable and now seems to have, have, have gone out of favour. Let's, let's throw this to Nick, because he was, he was saying very much he wanted to talk about this earlier. So, Nick, you come on, Atkins diet. Well, I think I want to talk about it because I think it uh, is a very attractive diet to some people, but only in the short term. It works, it's effective in the short term but it has long-term disadvantages. It, um, the, the issue is that here the ones uh, probably promoting a diet that's fundamentally unhealthy. By promoting high fat intake and low complex carbohydrate, we may be doing long-term damage in terms of cardiovascular risk. So I think people would be well advised to think about it maybe in the short term, but over the longer term it's not a good idea. Let's play devil's advocate for a second. A lot of people go on it, they say they lose weight, Nick. Sure, but that's fine in the short term, but people need to find a long-term sustainable way of maintaining that weight loss, and that needs to have sustainable lifestyle change, and, and I don't think one should think of the Atkins diet as the solution to that. Isn't, it, isn't, it, isn't, the Atkins, isn't, that, isn't that related to eating lots of chips and potatoes and things like that? No, no, totally not totally the opposite. That. opposite not the opposite way around, that's it, eat as much meat as you want, but don't touch the chips and the Correct. carbs. Correct. I heard at one point that Eskimos or Inuit, um, when they ate lots and lots of meat and stuff and didn't eat very many carbohydrates, they, their heart disease rate wasn't too bad. Then they moved on to Western diet and it went absolutely horrific. I mean, the natural diet of the Inuit people is to eat a diet that's very rich in, in uh, 
in the beneficial fats that come from fish. And, and under those circumstances, that's actually a healthy diet, lifestyle. It may be that those sort of populations are ones that if they then move to eating a different form of uh, diet, uh, particularly prone to the adverse effects of that. And no, we're actually engaged in a, a study with colleagues in uh, Alaska, which is going to take place over the next few years, trying to look at how diet and physical activity is changing in those populations. Because right. some of these... Uh, Populations that live primitive type lifestyles that are changing, that are most at risk of diabetes. Um, the, the the thing that I would like to just point out is that cows eat grass to excess, and that, for me, if you if you if you're brought upon eating nothing but grass, your body adapts. Does that make sense? Because like, and if you're an Inuit and you're brought up eating, you know, high fish diet your body's going to adapt to that so it's kind of logical isn't it as soon well, as you... I, no I don't agree with that because the thing is a cow has been fashioned by many millions of years of evolution to become very well adapted physiologically and anatomically to break down grass now grass is actually damn hard to digest it's full of cellulose this is a really hard molecule it's tough and our guts cannot break it down we don't have the right enzymes cows do but the way they get those enzymes is to use some friends of Tony's, which are bugs, and they've adapted their stomachs, so they have several stomachs in a row, and those stomachs are like giant fermenting vessels. They're stuffed with bacteria, and the bacteria do the work for the, for the cow. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. That's a very good example of what you might call friendly bacteria, which not only help the cow to survive, but ultimately help us to survive. But my, my my analogy was that if you if you know you take the Inuits who've been eating that diet for years and years and years and years, then it's probably they probably have evolved over many thousands of years to be able to accept that, mm. haven't they? Well, the the thing is that they probably haven't changed a huge amount actually. Um, humans are you know if, if you take the example that a species is defined as not being able to. Uh, an animal not being able to interbreed with another animal and that's what, how you define two different species because they're not interfertile. Mm. Well if you, you could breed with, a, with an Eskimo and there wouldn't be a problem so they're still very much related to you they're still very much human and so are <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what we hope is that they haven't actually mutated that much but Nick, Nick go ahead. Well, I think there's an element of, of truth in what Nick is saying. There are populations around the world which are clearly v highly susceptible to diseases like diabetes. You take the Pima Indians who live in an uh, area of Phoenix outside Arizona if you take that, that group of individuals, they have a prevalence of diabetes around 70%. So seven out of every 10 adults in that population have a disorder that's, you know, crippling. But they're also about 50 stone, aren't I they? Indeed, they are also about 50 stone. But there and is, there is also, that there is also um, uh, amongst the Asian population, there, there are ma ma much higher incidences of diabetes amongst the Asian population than there mm -hmm. are uh, in yeah, and British Asian population. But this is lifestyle, isn't it, Nick? Well, I don't think we know the answer to that, Chris. I think it, it could be a combination of genes and lifestyle, and it's very difficult to study that because at the minute we've been studying uh, the genetic basis of type 2 diabetes in Caucasian populations and it's incredibly difficult to find out what the genes are. Uh, we have a few hints, most of them look like they're genes that affect the, 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 the ability of the beta cell, the, the cell that produces pan uh, insulin in the pancreas to, to function. But what we don't know is if those same genetic uh, variants explain ethnic differences in diabetes risk, and that's the next stage we need to look at. Sure. Let's go to Roy. Good, Good evening, evening, Roy. Good evening. Thanks for ha hanging on there while we rabbit on about uh, diabetes and the like. Right. What's your question? Oh, well, uh, I've, I've gone off the main subjects there. I was told I could ask the question I phoned earlier. No problem. Now, uh, we hear a lot about global warming. 
and uh, recently we've been told that the hole in the ozone layer is getting smaller and that in 40 years time they think the hole in the ozone layer will be closed and I was thinking does this mean that an end to global warming Right, OK, there's two things going on here, actually. Um, global warming is not the same as the hole in the ozone layer. It's two different things. Um, oh, I see. The hole in the ozone layer is actually entirely our fault, and it was provoked by us producing a class of molecules called CFCs, or chlorofluorocarbons. They're things that have a lot of fluorine, a lot of chlorine in them. And what happens is that uh, when we use these substances, they're used in things like anaesthetic agents, in aerosol propellants, in fridges, because they make great refrigerants. They go up into the atmosphere, but they end up being concentrated in the region, in the region of Antarctica. And the reason for that is that Antarctica is a very big landmass, Right at the bottom of the world, it's completely surrounded by ocean. And this means that you get an almost like a whirlpool effect in the winds over Antarctica, which concentrates all the CFCs in that region of the globe in very high levels. And also, Antarctica has a long winter when there's no sunlight, and in summer, it has a lot of sunlight. So all these CFCs end up in Antarctica, in the sky, very high at wintertime. Then the sun comes out in the spring and it starts reacting with the CFC molecules and starts breaking them down into more reactive species called free radicals, and they leap onto the ozone, which is our protective anti-ultraviolet shield up in the, in the high atmosphere at about 50 kilometres above the Earth, and they break the ozone down. And once you've broken the ozone down, you get an ozone hole. And that's why the ozone hole grows and shrinks seasonally over Antarctica. And it's, it's huge at the moment. It's actually the size of the North American continent. It's absolutely massive. But, thank you, thankfully, in the late 80s, when people realised that these CFCs were going to be a problem, uh, the, excuse me, the Montreal Treaty said, we've got to stop using these things. So they actually stopped and declined in their usage, and uh, now the ozone hole has stopped expanding, and for the last few years it's remained static, which suggests that if it's stopped expanding, it must therefore be beginning to shrink. And so what we're hoping is that over the next few years it will slowly go back to being a nice thick ozone hole again. Global warming is something entirely different. It's down to a totally different set of gases. It's down to carbon dioxide, methane, and, and uh, a friend that Dave found out yesterday. Yeah, apparently nitrous oxide, which can be produced by putting too much fertiliser on the grass, is a really powerful greenhouse effect gas and can produce is 300 times more powerful than carbon dioxide and that can, that's producing about 10% of the warming at the moment. Is that why farmers tell good gags? It could well be, actually, because it's coming off the fields and it's laughing gas, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. Uh, Roy, I hope that's answered your question. David. Hi. Welcome Cheers, Nick. Chris. Um, since the BAE was last in Norwich, if you look at the programme, how much changes have been to like, the hard science? I mean, I think probably had visits to Pilkington's from memory. I can't remember before. But is the science agenda moving? I mean, technology and industries, a lot of offshoring. But has the landscape of the UK and science in the UEA area changed significantly in well, the last well, 20 years. Well, let's talk to someone who is a scientist in the UEA area, actually at the John Innes Centre in Norwich, actually. But let, let's ask Tony, I mean, as a, as a scientist working on bugs and antibiotics, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I wasn't here when the BA Festival was last here, but certainly science in general has moved on hugely in, in the last few years, and the sorts of things that we're doing today... We wouldn't have dreamed about doing ten years ago. You couldn't do the work you do today, I think, ten years ago, could you? Absolutely not. So, for example, one of the things that we're doing is engineering completely new antibiotics, molecules that people have never seen before by harnessing the chemistry out of soil bacteria. Now, five years ago, that, that wasn't possible. Today, it is possible. That's one example of the sort of thing we can do. That's real hard science, and nanotechnology, I assume it's the same. 
Oh, abs absolutely. So, for example, in the last couple of years, a new nanotechnology program has been launched at John Lewis Centre decorating virus particles with bits of metal, something that was never heard of a few years ago. So I moved on a long way since Buckminster Fulver in Live from Norwich with the best of the fest, the Naked Scientists. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, ninety-six percent replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a thirty-night guarantee. Plus, get fifteen percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.